This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And history and the American West, well, they're two of our favorite subjects, and they collide with this story. He has an historical center in Cody, Wyoming, named in his honor. And he's been portrayed in nearly 50 films and TV productions. Buffalo Bill Cody died in 1917. And throughout the 1950s, Americans saw heroic versions of the Cody story on the silver screen. But if you caught Paul Newman's Cody in the 1976 film Buffalo Bill and the Indians, you might have been persuaded that Cody was a drunk, a coward, a liar, and a con man. So was Buffalo Bill a real-life hero, or was he a fake? You're about to find out. Here to tell the story is Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he is a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. Most people today have an image only of the old white-haired showman, Buffalo Bill Cody. They know little or nothing about his early life, his life on the American frontier. That shaped him and made him legendary long before he created Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. At age 11, Bill Cody went to work full-time for a freighting company after his father had died. Young Cody was riding for the Pony Express by age 14, and at age 17, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving in the Civil War for more than two years. He then served as a scout for the Army in the Indian Wars on the High Plains. He took a leave of absence to Buffalo to feed the construction crews of the Kansas Pacific Railroad. His wildly successful hunts not only supplied the crews with tons of meat, but also earned him his nickname. William F. Cody is born in 1846 on a farm near the town of LeClaire in Iowa Territory. His father, Isaac, is from Canada and his mother from New Jersey. In 1854, the family moves to Kansas Territory, then known as Bleeding Kansas, for the violence between anti-slavery and pro-slavery settlers. Isaac Cody becomes one of the leaders of the anti-slavery settlers. After one of his fiery speeches, a pro-slavery ruffian stabs him with a bowie knife. Isaac survives, but his health is permanently damaged. And in 1857, after leading a group of anti-slavery settlers from Ohio to Kansas, he dies. With a family in dire financial straits, Bill Cody gets a job with Russell, Majors, and Waddell Freighting Company. Upon securing the job, he signs the company oath, which states, I agree not to use profane language, not to get drunk, not to gamble, not to treat animals cruelly, not to do anything else that is incompatible with the conduct of a gentleman. The 11-year-old boy first serves as a messenger, riding between company headquarters at Fort Leavenworth and various freight trains. After a couple of months, Cody begins working as a wrangler, taking care of the company's horses and other stock. He also joins a freight train bound for Fort Kearney in Nebraska Territory, 
a distance of some 330 miles one way, and a 40-day round trip. Indian attacks are feared, but none materialize. However, a buffalo stampede takes the train by surprise, and Cody impresses everyone with his presence of mind and quick actions. When the train finally returns home to Fort Leavenworth, Cody has paid a man's wages. He takes the money home to his mother. His five sisters think of him as their hero. Cody's greatest adventure with the freighting company begins in the summer of 1857. The company is given the contract to carry freight for the U.S. Army, which is sending a 2,500-man force to Utah to control Brigham Young and his colony of Mormons. What becomes known as the Utah or Mormon War is essentially a result of conflict between territorial Governor Brigham Young and federally appointed non-Mormon territorial officials. After proving his mettle on the wagon train to Fort Kearney, Cody is able to go on this much longer and more dangerous trip. The train is led by two veterans of freighting on the high plains, the brothers Frank and Bill McCarthy. The McCarthys warn of possible Indian attacks once the train is west of Fort Kearney. Near the confluence of Plum Creek and the South Platte River, a band of Sioux warriors sweep down on the wagon train. The Teamsters drive off the Sioux with rifle fire, but several Sioux return at night to steal horses. Cody spies one, takes careful aim, and fires. The warrior tumbles down an embankment and splashes into the river, dead. The 11-year-old Cody is on a second wagon train, this one led by Lewis Simpson, when he meets Wild Bill Hickok. Hickok is nine years older than Cody and already has a reputation as an honorary character. During a meal break, one of the other Teamsters bullies the young Cody and whacks him across the face. What are you going to do, cry? Cody retaliates by throwing a pot of hot coffee into the Teamster's face. The Teamster reacts instantly. Cody describes what happens in his autobiography. He sprang for me with the ferocity of a tiger and would undoubtedly have torn me to pieces had it not been for the timely interference of my newfound friend, Wild Bill, All right, son. who knocked the man down. You fellas like picking on children? As soon as he recovered himself, he demanded of Wild Bill what business it was of his that he should put in his oar. It's my business to protect that boy or anybody else from being unmercifully abused, kicked, and cuffed. And I'll whip any man who tries it on, said Wild Bill. And if you ever lay a hand on that boy, little of Billy there, I'll give you such a pounding that you won't get over it for a month of Sundays. From that time forward, Wild Bill was my protector and intimate friend. And the friendship thus begun continued until his death. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath tell the story of Buffalo Bill Cody. Let's continue with McGrath. This wagon train doesn't suffer any Indian attacks, but instead it's attacked and captured by a Mormon cavalry militia led by Lot Smith. Wagon Master Simpson agrees to surrender only if the Teamsters are left with their guns so they won't be defenseless against Indians. 
and with one wagon of supplies so they won't starve. Militia Commander Smith agrees. He has his men loot the wagons of all food and ammunition they can carry on horseback and then sets the wagons ablaze. Cody and the others are now forced to hike their way 60 miles to Fort Bridger, where they spend the winter. Cody turns 12 in February 1858, while still at the fort. In the spring, they hike nearly a thousand miles back to Fort Leavenworth, arriving in July. Cody spends the rest of the summer at Fort Laramie. Kit Carson and Jim Bridger are there also, both legendary mountain men and scouts. They regale Cody with tales of their mountain man days and school him in frontier skills. They also teach him the Indian sign language of the plains. Cody also learns enough of the Sioux language to converse with Sioux at the fort. Late in the winter of 1859, Cody begins a return trip with a Lewis Simpson-led wagon train from Fort Laramie to Fort Leavenworth. There are three groups of wagons, each group about a day apart. Cody's with Simpson in the third group. Simpson wants to contact the second group, and he, his assistant wagon master George Wood, and Bill Cody ride ahead on mules. They cover about seven miles of ground before spying a band of more than three dozen Sioux warriors coming their way. Since the Teamsters are without cover and their mules cannot possibly outrun the Sioux horses, Cody reckons his time has come. He's 13 years old. But Simpson orders a dismount, arranges the mules in a triangle, and then shoots them to death. Using the dead mules as cover, the three Teamsters rest their rifles on the backs of the animals, take careful aim, and begin firing at the onrushing Sioux. The whites are all crack shots, and three Sioux are knocked off their horses and hit the ground dead. The other warriors break off their charge and retreat to a safe distance. Wood is wounded in the shoulder, but he's not out of action. Simpson and Cody are unscathed. The Indians now set fire to the prairie grass, hoping to burn out the Teamsters. But the grass is too short to cause a real conflagration. Failing with fire, the Indians charge again. The Teamsters let their rifles roar, causing the second charge to collapse. The Indians regroup, prepare for another charge, probably thinking the Teamsters must now be out of ammunition or nearly so. Simpson, Wood, and Cody are down to one round each, and there are still three dozen Sioux intent on taking their scalps. As Cody later says, unless help came, it was only a question of time till it was all over. Help does come. The third wagon train catches up with the three beleaguered Teamsters. From a safe distance, the Indians fire a last volley of arrows and bullets and ride for the horizon. In 1859, Russell, Majors, and Waddell begin thinking of launching a horseback express service from Missouri to the West Coast. Early in 1860, they begin gathering riders and horses and building stations along a 1,900-mile route from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California. It's going to be both financially risky and risky for the riders. 
The company's newspaper ad reads, Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows. Not over 18. Must be expert riders, willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. Wages $25 a week. At the age of 14, Bill Cody becomes a Pony Express rider. His home station is in Wyoming, and he has one of the most dangerous stretches of the entire 1,900-mile route. Riders usually go no more than 100 miles, changing horses at stations about 15 miles apart. On one of his runs, Cody takes off westbound with a mail pouch from the Red Buttes station. Changing horses at half a dozen stations along the way, Cody reaches the station at three crossings, where he is supposed to hand off the pouch to a fresh rider. The rider, though, has been killed. Cody grabs a fresh horse and pushes on several stations down the line to the Rocky Ridge station and hands off the pouch to another rider. Cody has ridden nonstop 161 miles. Cody has no time to rest because an eastbound rider arrives at Rocky Ridge at the end of his stretch. Cody takes a mail pouch and gallops off. He changes horses nine times before arriving at Red Buttes. He's in the saddle for 322 miles. Only two riders in Pony Express history ever ride farther. The Pony Express is perhaps the most colorful experiment in the history of mail service the world has ever seen, but its days are numbered. Telegraph lines reached the West Coast by October 1861, and the Pony Express is out of business. Bill Cody is out of a job. The Civil War has erupted, and the 15-year-old immediately thinks of enlisting in the Union Army. His mother is suffering with tuberculosis, though, and he returns to the family farm to help the family. He does join a volunteer regiment, the 9th Kansas Cavalry, for temporary service as a scout. He spends part of the spring and summer in 1862 patrolling the Santa Fe Trail and fighting Kiowa and Comanche, who are attacking wagon trains and pioneer homesteads. Cody's mother dies of TB late November 1863. Cody is devastated by the loss. His mother had been the rock of the family ever since the father died six years earlier. For two months, Cody tries to drown his sorrow in whiskey and admits to probably being drunk when he and some of his drinking companions join the 7th Kansas Cavalry. He's one week shy of his 18th birthday. By June 1864, the 7th Kansas is in Tennessee fighting Confederates. In July, the 7th is in Mississippi and fighting the Battle of Tupelo against the greatest of the Confederate cavalry generals, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Cody is serving as a scout. The 7th Kansas pursues the Confederates through Missouri and into Arkansas, with Cody scouting well in advance of the regiment. During the pursuit of the Confederates, Cody encounters his old friend from his freight wagon days, Wild Bill Hickok, also serving as a scout. As Cody tells it, they are both dressed as Confederates to ease their scouting in the staunchly pro-Southern portion of Missouri they are now in. 
When Cody stops at a farmhouse for something to eat, he finds Hickok in the kitchen with a plate of bread and a glass of milk. In September 1865, Bill Cody is mustered out of service. He then serves briefly as a civilian scout for General Sherman, who is inspecting his new command in the West. Cody then becomes a stagecoach driver on a route that runs from Nebraska through Wyoming. Whenever he can, he visits St. Louis to see a girl he met during the Civil War. She is Louisa Federici from an old and prominent French family. They are married in March 1866. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath tell the story of Buffalo Bill Cody. My goodness, there's so much to unpack. And just imagine there was a day when we had Pony Express riders connecting St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California. Quite a jaunt, quite a ride. And a special thanks, as always, to Dr. Roger McGrath. And by the way, again, he is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. And you see him, if you turn on the History Channel, there he'll be. And he does these stories for us and does such a beautiful job talking about the American West, the frontiersmen, and giving a full historical picture of what it was like to be there then. It's so hard to judge these men out of their times. We refuse to do that here on Our American Stories. People lived when they lived, and we want to walk in their shoes or take you back into their shoes. Let's return to Roger McGrath. The marriage will soon have problems. She's a city girl, accustomed to luxuries and refined social life. He's a frontiersman, most comfortable in wide open spaces. They will have four children, two of whom die when young. Cody decides it's best if he serves as a civilian scout for the Army in campaigns on the High Plains. He will be gone for months at a time, but then home for several months. One of the commanders he scouts for is Lieutenant Colonel George Custer. Custer is highly pleased with Cody's scouting, and Cody admires and respects Custer as a man and as an officer. Meanwhile, the Kansas Pacific Railroad is building across western Kansas, and it needs a local source of food for its construction crews. Famous for his marksmanship, Bill Cody is hired to hunt buffalo at the princely sum of $500 a month, equivalent to $50,000 today. Cody will have to hire uh, helpers to butcher the buffalo and drive wagons, but he will still reap enormous profits. The pay is high because of Cody's reputation and also because the work is highly dangerous. Bands of Indian warriors are everywhere on the plains of western Kansas, and a buffalo hunter with a helper or two have a good chance of dying. From 1867 to 1868, Cody kills more than 4,000 buffalo, and the construction crews of the Kansas Pacific Railroad are well fed. Cody not only makes big bucks, but he also earns a nickname that will be his for life. The railroad workers sing a jingle, Buffalo Bill, Buffalo Bill, never missed and never will, always aims and shoots to kill, and the company pays his Buffalo Bill. By August 1868, Bill Cody is back serving as a scout for the Army, and much of the time he's working with his old pal, Hickok, 
Now it's Buffalo Bill and Wild Bill scouting together on the high plains. It's good they are, because several bands of Kiowa, Comanche, Arapaho, and Cheyenne are on the warpath, wreaking havoc across the southern plains. Bill Cody is 22 years old. Cody's service during the next two years is scouting, daring do, Indian fighting, and hunting. Add more to his legend. Edward Judson, who writes under the name Ned Buntline, knows a good story when he sees one. In his travels to the West, he spends time with the Army and with Cody. Late in December 1869, he starts writing a serial for the New York Weekly titled Buffalo Bill, King of the Border Men. Part fact based on the actual exploits of Bill Cody and part fiction, the weekly stories enthrall not only New Yorkers but readers of dozens of other newspapers which carry the serial. Buffalo Bill Cody becomes a household name and Cody becomes a national hero. Despite his fame, Cody continues to scout for the Army and is cited for conspicuous and gallant conduct. He also leads hunting expeditions for wealthy Easterners and European noblemen. They all write glowing reports about the skill and courage of the colorful frontiersmen. In February 1872, Cody takes a leave from scouting duties and with General Sheridan's approval, makes a trip to the East. Cody is treated as a celebrity everywhere he goes, and the most prominent men's clubs in New York and Philadelphia are eager to make him a member. By April 1872, Cody is back on the High Plains scouting for the Army. In a display of his tracking skills, he leads a detachment of seven cavalrymen to the camp of an Indian raiding party who have dozens of stolen horses and several fresh scalps of settlers. Cody takes the Indians by surprise and kills one before they flee, leaving everything behind but the horses they are riding and the weapons in their hands. Cody gives chase and the cavalrymen follow. During the chase, a bullet creases Cody's scalp, but he continues his pursuit. He closes on the rearmost Indians and kills two of them. The action earns Cody the Medal of Honor. Cody's now lured to the East again. Ned Buttline is organizing a theatrical production, The Scouts of the Plains, and he convinces Cody to star in it. For the next four years, Cody appears on stage to play Buffalo Bill to packed theaters. However, in June 1876, General Sheridan prevails upon Cody to return to the 5th Cavalry for the campaign against the Sioux and Cheyenne, who have bolted the reservation. Cody is with the 5th when the regiment receives word that Custer and 200 men of his command have been massacred. Cody is shocked by the death of a man and officer he greatly respected. Cody suddenly has an opportunity for some measure of revenge. An officer is looking through binoculars and spies a courier racing towards the 5th's position with seven Indians chasing him. Cody is alerted and taking a handful of troopers with him. He gallops into the charging Indians. Cody takes the lead Indian for himself. The Indian is Yellow Hair, a name other warriors have given him because dangling from his belt is the blonde hair of a settler he has scalped. 
Yellowhair is no ordinary warrior, but the son of Chief Cutnose. Yellowhair's magnificent war bonnet indicates he is a veteran of many battles. Cody and Yellowhair fire at each other almost at the same time. Yellowhair's bullet misses Cody, but Cody's punches a hole in Yellowhair's leg and digs into the Indian's horse. Both rider and horse go down. At the same time, Cody's horse stumbles in a prairie dog hole. Cody leaps to the ground and closes on Yellowhair. Again, both fire at almost the same time. Yellowhair's bullet misses Cody. Cody's shot drills Yellowhair in the head, killing him instantly. Cody races up to his dead foe and scalps him. Newspapers call it the first scalp for Custer. Cody is soon back on the stage and will organize his Wild West show within a few years. As the years go by, people begin to think of Buffalo Bill Cody more as a flamboyant showman and less of what he really is, a frontiersman who began making a name for himself at age 11 and actually did all the things portrayed and dramatized in his shows. Theodore Roosevelt said it best in calling Bill Cody the most renowned of those men, steel-thewed and iron-nerved, whose daring opened the West to settlement and civilization. He embodied those traits of courage, strength, and self-reliant hardihood, which are vital to the well-being of the nation. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler on the production. And a special thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. We bring you these stories because, well, they happened. And not happened like forever ago, but up until, really, the 19th century and its end, life was very different. And life had been very different for centuries before that, mostly an agrarian country, uh, mostly a farming country. We were just beginning to become an industrial power. Electricity would occur, running water. But these men lived in a different time, and we love bringing you their stories. And always, we have historians who never judge these men and women out of context, but walk where they walked and when they walked and saw what they saw. Four kids, by the way, two died young. This is a recurrent theme right straight through the 19th century and the early 20th century. People had kids and a couple of them just died. And so many of the things we take for granted now just weren't available then. And at 11 years old, doing the work he did, just plain crazy. The story of Buffalo Bill Cody, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and up next, a listener's story from KWKC, 1340 AM in Abilene, Texas. Jay Moore is a retired history teacher who's known for his fascinating and humorous presentations about his own city's history. He hosts them in their historic Paramount Theater, and over 900 people regularly show up for these presentations, which sounds crazy, but that's what great storytelling can inspire. 
And although he wouldn't say it about himself, the guy is like the resident town historian. And today, Jay brings us a story from the area. It's a deeply personal one about his grandma. Here's Jay. It was after my grandmother had passed away that I realized just how deeply her lack of education embarrassed her. I think it was a secret shame that she carried. In her naughty pine panel den, there were bookshelves that were filled with hardback books. That was the room that she used the most, watching her soap operas or crocheting, working a jigsaw puzzle, visiting with family members. But I never one time saw her with one of those books in her lap. Following her death in 1992, it was my dad who came to own the contents of those bookshelves. And so one day I sat down to look over the books and see if there were any that I might enjoy reading. The first book I picked up was the historical fiction of Catherine Marshall that was titled Christie. On the first page, I saw in my grandmother's familiar handwriting that she had written this. This is one of the best books that I have read. For that reason alone, I thought I might like to read it as well, and I started a stack to take to my car. Picking up another book, I noticed the same handwritten notation in a 50s-era novel. Ditto for the third book and the fourth book, and really nearly all the rest. It seemed odd that she would record such thoughts as though she herself might one day pick the book back up and be reminded that it was worth reading. But it slowly dawned on me. She was not writing introspective analysis nor trying to convey the quality to a future reader who might pick the book from her shelf. She wrote comments in the front of books she never read because her elementary level education shamed her to write those fake reactions. She wrote them to throw others off the scent. When Granny was 14, she took a trip west from her home near Waco, Texas, to visit her family in Runnels County, which was about 120 miles west. On that trip, she met a neighbor of her relatives who was nine years older and who would become my grandfather. The following fall in 1923, they were married. Granny was 15 and my granddad was 24. They lived in a two-room board and batten house that my granddad built on some land that his parents had given to him so that he could farm. It was in that house that Granny gave birth at age 16. I never knew if a doctor or even a neighbor was available to help with the birth, but in the end, the baby girl was dead. A small box was fashioned to serve as a coffin, and my grandfather, alone, took the box to the cemetery east of Winters, Texas. He placed the child in the earth next to another infant. That infant was his own brother, who also had died at birth. So he buried his daughter to the side of his own brother. Sixteen is young to be a mother, much less one who is grieving. And I wondered just how my grandmother coped inside that little house. By the time she was 18, she had a healthy baby boy, followed by five more sons. When I was growing up, we were often at Granny and Granddaddy's house. Upstairs at the end of their hall was my grandfather's office. 
On the wall was a large, framed family tree that a draftsman friend had drawn for him. It was comforting to see the generations diagrammed in the logic of family connections. Their sons were the branches, and my dad was near the tree's middle. But it was the first branch, the one down low, that was intriguing to me. A very short branch that was just labeled infant. My grandfather died in 1985, and in just a short time, my grandmother's sons had convinced her to sell the house that she had lived in for 35 years and to disseminate all the furniture and the dishes and the family tree. She moved to a smaller house, but before long, she moved from there to a nursing home when she was 84. During those days of her living in just one room with commercial furniture and a view of an empty field, I stopped by several times each week, and my grandmother and I had conversations. Some of them were short, but others were long enough that by the end she had fallen asleep. We discussed our family, church, what was happening in the news. I don't recall how it was, but on one visit, we talked about that family tree, and I brought up that lowest branch. Granny told me the story of the unnamed baby girl and the burial and those difficult days that she went through so long ago. She bemoaned that she had never visited the grave, and now she couldn't even remember the name of the cemetery and was only vaguely familiar with its location somewhere east of Winters, Texas. But she knew a woman still living in Winters who would know, and I sensed that she was asking me to go on a mission for her. That is how I came to drive 40 miles south from my house to pick up Leona Billups one day at her small home. Leona had known my grandparents for most of her life. She had me drive east on a farm to market road and she told me of the one-time community known as Truett. The one-room school community was long gone and really the only remnant was the Truett Cemetery. Finally, we came across a green sign pointing to Truett Cemetery, although it was actually pointing at a gate into a farmer's field. And since it was raining, we didn't go any farther. The next day I went to see Granny, caught her up on Leona's life and all about her family. And I told her that I knew the approximate location of the cemetery, but that I would have to go back and open the gate and drive down the rutted path. Granny told me then that her infant daughter was buried beside the other baby, my granddad's brother. But she said she was not even sure if that grave was marked. On my second trip south, I took a friend. We arrived at the gate opposite the Truett Cemetery sign. We drove slowly through the tall grass between tire ruts before coming to a second gate. Soon, we saw a fence at the end of the half-mile path. The fence surrounded a square plot of land with a wide silver gate that had welded metal letters spelling out Truett on top. And just inside the gate were some headstones that were visible, but others were far back among cactus and yuccas and grass that seemed prime real estate for snakes. And we hadn't brought anything like hoes or shovels to hack at that growth or to ward off reptiles. I stepped in to begin a hunt for a headstone I was not sure even existed. The markers were spread far apart, and there was no evidence of any row or path like there is in most cemeteries. I gingerly stepped over cactus and cautiously examined the etched stones to see if there was one with my last name. Towards the back corner, 
I used my heel to push over a yucca growing right next to a small stone. And behind the plant was a weathered inscription cut into a sandstone marker, reading, Infant Son of D.S. and M.F. Moore, Daniel Spurgeon and Mary Francis, my great-grandparents, the grave of my granddad's brother. A smile of relief came, for there was the spot where my grandfather had laid his daughter nearly 70 years before. The next day, seated by Granny's bed, I watched her face register a strange relief. An 84-year-old mother who had never forgotten a daughter, who had never breathed life. Granny had finally found the child that she had given birth to when she was just 16. A few days later, she told me that she had decided to put a marker on the grave, and she asked me to go to the monument company to choose one and to pick one similar in size to the one marking the adjoining grave. She said that she wanted the marker to have a lamb on it. And she had decided on a name for her infant daughter. The name was Dixie Lee. Dixie was my granny's name, and so I asked, for you? No, she said, Dixie Lee was the name of Bing Crosby's wife, and I always liked her. A few weeks later, I returned to Truett Cemetery followed by a truck from the monument company. But because I was not sure on which side Dixie Lee was buried, my grandmother had told me to just choose one. I chose the north side, putting her that much closer to her mother. For the past 30 summers, I have returned to Truett Cemetery and to the grave of Dixie Lee. And there I've cleared the growth and smoothed the ground, marking the site of Granny's never forgotten child. My grandmother, Dixie Moore, died only a few months after she found her daughter. And my goodness, what a beautiful story and a special thanks to Jay Moore. What a thing to do for your grandma. And what a thing for her to do for a grandson, to give him that responsibility. She finally got to name her baby, and not too long after she passed. By the way, we're hoping these kinds of stories inspire you to do the same with your friends, your siblings, your grandmother, your grandson, your kids, to not know the names and not know the stories of your own family history. Well, that's so much of what we're doing here on Our American Stories, telling the story of America to Americans. And a special thanks to our friend in Abilene. You know who you are for sending this story our way. And a special thanks to Robbie for doing a beautiful job on the production. Jay Moore's story, his grandmother's story, A beautiful family story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we bring you a woman of true grit story as a part of our series from our friend Edie Hand. Her friend, Christy Swade, currently runs an organization in Alabama called HEAL, H-E-A-L, which is making an effort across the country to fight childhood obesity. But Christy didn't get started in the healthcare industry or in Alabama, for that matter. She was born and raised in Chicago and began her career in jet skiing. Here's Edie Hand with a story. 
Christy Swade is a unique woman with humble beginnings. I had a very unexpected and unusual childhood. Born and raised in Chicago, and my parents divorced when I was five. My dad kind of disappeared for a couple of years and reinvented himself in Florida. My mom raised us uh, as a single parent. I really didn't understand it. My mom did continue to try to give us as much of a normal, joyful existence as possible and never really said anything ugly about him. Uh, so it was just very confusing to me. And I always loved him dearly. I mean, he and I are very close. We have always been very close. Christie's life would take the turn towards the unusual the day her father came back into her life. I'll never forget, I was walking out of kindergarten in my little uh, Catholic uniform. I wore a plaid little skirt uniform. And I can visualize it like it was yesterday. And here he was, like, leaning against the railing of the sidewalk as you would exit the school. And I would walk home. And I was like, Dad? You know, I was just so happy to see him. And so he would come and go just at random times, trying to stay connected with us. And I know he really wanted to create an environment where he could send for us. So that love was always there, you know, in spite of the fact that the marriage fell apart. When my dad resurfaced, he had started something that no one had ever done before. He was quite the creative entrepreneur, and he started a jet ski rental in the 70s. And so the only people that ever saw jet skis back then would be like a 007 film or something like that. And they were skinny little stand-up types that were really difficult to ride. And so we thought, wow, I don't know how this business is going to actually work, but he bought a whole bunch of jet skis for a fire sale because a Kawasaki dealership went out of business and he started something that no one ever had before. He ended up pretty much coining the industry. He set up rentals all over South Florida and uh, all uh, aligned with really beautiful resorts. And so he started sending for us and I spent my summers and my holidays with my dad having fun on the company equipment. So uh, it would turn out, started off rough and terrible, turned out to be a good experience. And my brother's rule was, you can play with us if you can keep up. Otherwise, you're left alone on the beach. And so I was going 90 to nothing all the time, just to, <laughs> just to not be left alone on the beach. It was during those summers in Florida that Christy was introduced to her future profession. The professional jet ski tour was invented and they started touring across the nation and they stopped in our city. And of course, my dad was involved in that. And so I said, hey, I want to race. And I borrowed a helmet. I had no gloves, no shoes, just a, a rental jet ski and a weird orange life jacket <laughs> and ended up, you know, competing uh, and loved every bit of it. And I think I was in my first race in the top three or top five or something like that. So I was 13 years old, went back to Chicago, back to reality, back to school. And school was very important to me. Grades were very important. Uh, I always considered maybe going to medicine or something like that. Uh, if, But what it ended up happening was the, um, my jet ski career took off. At age 15, I was sponsored on a professional team. By the time I was 18, senior in high school, I was flying out on 
Friday after school to train with the team and back in on red eye uh, Monday morning and straight to my high school. I was pulling zero hour classes and then after hour classes to try to graduate early and I graduated in January instead of with my class and moved the very next day to California to be with the team full time and train eight hours a day every day to be ready for my first professional race which was May 30th 1989. So I'd be lining up with those who I admired. I looked at every magazine and, and wished to be these girls that were winning for all these years before I entered that class. And here I was on the starting line side by side and I was terrified. But by her mother's teachings, she held to her faith in moments when the odds seemed stacked against her. And I had memorized lots of scriptures while training, things like the hand of the diligent shall prosper, but a slapful hand will lead a man to poverty. or in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run the race as if to win the prize. So I took those scriptures with me into training. And even though I could have cut corners or ended early without everyone knowing, uh, I knew that would not honor God. I took that with me to the starting line. And there was this scripture that almost sounds ridiculous, but he says, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So therefore I shall boast about my weaknesses, for when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Well, that just sounds ridiculous, but I was terrified on that starting line, and I said, I am very scared, so therefore I'm weak, and therefore I will totally depend on your power, and so I'll be stronger than I could be on my own merit. And that was my prayer on that starting line, and I ended up winning that race, as well as many races going forward and became the world champion in 1989 as a rookie in my first pro year. And you've been listening to Christy Swade, and it's a part of our Women of True Grit series. At 13, she said, hey, I want to race. By 15, she's sponsored on a pro team. By the age of 18, she's leaving class in high school, flying on Fridays to train with the pros and come back on Monday to go back to school. And right after graduation, a day later, she's in California training to be a professional jet skier. When we continue more of our Women of True Grit series, the story of Christy Swade, here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories in our Women of True Grit series and the remarkable story of professional jet skier, Christy Swade. Here's our friend Edie Hand with a story. Even though nowadays professional jet skiing is a thing of the past, Christy found herself riding the wave at its peak. The jet ski industry really boomed in the early 90s and we got picked up by ESPN and we were actually having summer ratings competing with baseball. The national tour would be kind of like a NASCAR tour. 
We'd start off on the west coast and work our way all the way across to the east coast. And every race stop would have its unique water conditions and we would set the watercraft up for those conditions. I would do testing, hours and hours of testing different parts to get the right setup for a certain environment. And depending on the water conditions, February weather, I would be eight hours sitting in Lake Havasu City in the Colorado River drainage, by the way. My feet would be like ice blocks, totally numb, and I'd have to wait for the next carburetor while waiting cold. And uh, there was no sympathy. I mean, you know, they, you just have to embrace the pain. And so people thought, oh, our lives were just, you know, beach and fun. But no, it was a lot of off-season sacrifice going on. And while it demanded a lot of her, the dedication she displayed paid off. So my number went from 27 to 1. And that was kind of cool because that brought endorsements and, you know, in, uh, financial independence. And it went on from there. So I ended up defending my championship in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. 94, um, my competitor signed a deal with a different manufacturer and her watercraft was just smoother in the rough water and mine was pounding in every wave and it started taking a toll on my body so i was chronically injured i had you know soft tissue inflammation i was taking six to ten advil every day just to feel somewhat capable of training um, and then i ended up overtraining and, and sprained and broken ankle i actually broke my sternum crashed on a mountain bike. <laughs> it was a rough year. It felt like everything was against me. I was really down on many levels and I wondered where God was. And, and when things don't go well, you now it's easy to praise God when everything's going great, but when things don't go well, you start to wonder, have I been abandoned? You know, where are you? And Christy carries one of those, where are you moments with her to this very day. My first time to be defeated in a long time. Uh, I was praying for a miracle and the pressure was intense and it didn't happen for me. And I really felt like I let everyone down. I felt like I let my sponsors down, my fans. I just was at the bottom of the barrel. And uh, I went home in Havasu, that's where the world finals are held. And the sun was starting to set and I was still in my wetsuit and I laid down on the carpet, like face down in the carpet just collapsed and I just didn't feel like getting up and moving. I didn't feel like getting dressed. The awards were that night. I just didn't even want to go. And my mom had this suspicion that something wasn't good or right. So she came by my house and opened the door and saw me on the floor in the dark. <laughs> and she's like, get up. You are going to dress as though you won this championship. And you're going to thank everybody in the same way as if you had won this championship. And you're going to congratulate your competitor and tell her what a great job she did. And I'm like, oh no, I'm not. I, I can't even change my clothes, let alone fathom doing all that. And so we went and I was like, oh, I was loathing the whole thing. But I did it because otherwise I would suffer the consequences of mom. What's amazing is the fan mail that came to me after that. It blew my mind. And it was many parents writing to say, I'm so thankful my daughter, who's never won, 
has seen an example of grace in defeat. And I was like, I really don't deserve these praises because my attitude was wrong and bad. Those praises should go to my mom. So, you know, that was an example, a milestone for me that I still pull from when I feel down and terrible. But nevertheless, obedience, even with a bad attitude, produces fruit. Obedience with a bad attitude produces fruit. If Christy had not learned that lesson and stuck to it, she may not have made it to where she is today. So 94 and 95, those were two tough, dark years for me in my racing career. And, and again, 94, it started all the soft tissue injuries. And I was one to always try to overcompensate with overtraining. I always thought, you know, more is better. And then it, it eventually ended up, I ha had a broken ankle. I was actually racing in a cast. I mean, it, it was miserable. I, just like NASCAR, I mean, if you, even if you finish middle pack, you get points on the, on the board and it's a points system for the national championship. So even if I just finished a few laps, uh, I, I would have some points and that's how you pay your bills. I mean, it's just, so there was just no option. I had to be out there. And her persistence in the midst of pain would soon be the source of a comeback. But um, when I got defeated again in 95, there was a company that wanted to help rehabilitate me, but also do a research and development experiment and find out what is the physical fitness intensity of jet ski racing as compared to like pro boxing. And they were trainers, uh, it's called Versa Climber and Heart Rate Incorporated. So what they taught me was how to train according to heart rate. And it transformed my life and my career. Your heart will tell you what's too much and what's not enough. That made me so powerful. Uh, their, their support and their training, they said, jet ski racing, your heart rate never drops below 80% max and often nears 100% because you're in a deep knee bend, you're pushing and pulling with your arms, your head is holding up a wet helmet, every single muscle in your body is firing at the same time. And so I started doing fitness endorsements and now as an expert of heart rate conditioning, and it was those injuries that put me in their care. And then in 1996, my competitor who had defeated me for two years, for the first time in three years, we will have been on equal equipment. So finally my contract ended with the watercraft that was abusing my body. And I signed on with the same manufacturer she was with. And she had been with him for three years and I had three months to learn how to ride a new hull. And that was no easy thing either because all of my style that worked on the other hull did not apply to this hull. So I had to basically crawl before I could walk, walk before I could run on my watercraft. But once I figured it out <laughs> and that fitness was on my side, the difference between being paying that price and being fit intelligently is a difference in the last lap still having your faculties because you can think and make strategy because you're not so exhausted. And so I was able to pull off the championship in 96 as a big comeback. Now the sit-down market started to increase because the manufacturers 
manufacturers were noticing that for every stand-up sold, they're selling 10 sit-down watercraft. So I believe this was the beginning of the end of our sport because the sit-down class is very challenging, but on camera, it doesn't really translate the intensity of what you're really going through on that watercraft. And then the ratings began to drop and then the sponsors began to walk away and the sport tanked after that. But despite it being the end of her sports career, Christy was just getting started. Those years, uh, I started doing more film and television stunts and um, picked up a nice little side job doing stunts on Baywatch. And when we come back, more of Christy Swade's story. What happens next? The sport she loved, at least competing in it professionally, well, it had dried up. What happens next in so many of our lives when the profession we're in dries up? Our Women of True Grit series continues with Christy Swade's story. By the way, a Women of True Grit story that you might have, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'd love to hear it. Again, when we come back, Christy Swade's story continues here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and we left off with our Women of True Grit episode on Christy Swade with her career ending and she had found new ways it turns out to put her skills to other uses. Here's Edie Hand with the story. Looking back Christy has her dad to thank for her jet ski career but she has her mother to thank for her character. My mom had always echoed to me that your purpose is to use your gifts and talents to glorify the Lord. So don't ever forget that. The way in which I was able to serve was through the Coast Guard Auxiliary. So I, I had noticed that one out of three accidents on the waterways involved personal watercraft, which made me feel terrible because it's the sport I represent and I love. And it was also threatening our freedom to ride. They were starting to shut down waterways to personal watercraft. And so it was threatening. And so I ended up stepping up and becoming certified in all levels of marine safety. And then I spoke at lots of different conferences and taught safe boating classes. And all of it was uh, you know, volunteer work for the Coast Guard. And they had appointed me on the national staff. So I became the National Goodwill Ambassador for boating safety for the Coast Guard and helped write a search and rescue manual using 
jet skis. And the philosophy was that um, you know, a scalpel in a surgeon's hand can save a life and a criminal's hand can take a life. The jet ski itself is not evil. The jet ski can save a life in fast, shallow water. And I'll show you how, because I've been part of rescues um, several times. That was rewarding. I, I mean, I always felt like it's my responsibility to use my skill for a greater good. So um, it was a lot of hours and sometimes you know, it, it, it got heavy, but, um, and then some of my colleagues, like my other, my racer friends would make fun of me for wearing a Coast Guard uniform that, that looked like a little do-gooder. And uh, these guys are like, you know, body piercings and tattoos. So it was, but I'm like, hey, I'm helping you preserve your right to ride. So get on board. <laughs> the other part of being a jet ski racer is really we're nothing more or less than a marketing tool. That's the whole point of a racing program for a manufacturer. In fact, Kawasaki was like a family to me and, and they, they put me into training to know how to do an interview and not miss an opportunity to get the brand up front and how to kind of control the interview, make sure I say the things that they want said. And so they put me in some classes and training for that. Then when I accepted this responsibility as a safe voting leader, uh, I got a column in a magazine, so I had a monthly editorial, so I had to get hired writing coaches to teach me and, and to edit my stuff and make sure that it was quality, worthy of publication. She knew her partnerships would make her money, but she didn't expect that it would make her a match. When I was actually at the Atlanta Super Show signing autographs with Corey Everson, six-time Miss Olympia, uh, who's just the most stunning woman you'll ever meet. Uh, uh, she was, uh, she and I were signing autographs together for the VersaClimber and Heart Rate Incorporated company. And she, her line was pretty long. Mine was not as long as hers. <laughs> and uh, this neurosurgeon came by who knew her and was waiting on her to go to lunch or something like that. And he came and started talking to me and I'm like, neurosurgeon, you actually fix people's brains? And the answer was yes. And I'm like, the first thing I want to do is see his hands. So I grabbed his hand. I go, I got to see the hands of a neurosurgeon. And they were so soft and delicate. And then he's like, let me see your hands. And I said, no, <laughs> my hands are ugly, horrible. They're like a bear paw, you know, full of calluses and stuff like that. But nevertheless, he insisted and I showed him. And yeah, I had these big, ugly calluses and stuff. But they're working hands, you know, and they were getting the job done. So, uh, but anyway, I signed a scripture on a poster that allowed me to try to communicate quickly who I am and what matters to me to people who wanted posters. Well, anyway, that sparked our conversation to continue. And so my husband, his name is Dr. Swade. He, uh, he and I kept in touch and we dated long distance for a couple years, LA to AL. And then finally he proposed and, and I had a big decision to make to completely and totally retire because you can't do the Hollywood scene unless you're there doing it every single day and especially pro sports since it's a full eight hour a day commitment or you can't be competitive or you won't even be safe. So anyway, the decision was made because I had a secret prayer. The prayer was always that I want to be a good wife to a good man. 
and I'd never met a better man. And so um, we got married and then here I am in Alabama and everything I'm good at has no value. <laughs> so um, my husband's like, you know, I go, nobody cares about me being able to spin a fast turn around a buoy. And I can't cook to save my life. I need instructions on boiling water. I mean, so um, he had empathy for me and he said, why don't you just look around and anything you want to get involved in, whatever it may be, I'll support it. Well, I really wished to be able to have kids and I, I hadn't gotten pregnant yet and that was not happening immediately. I actually had to go to doctors and make sure I was okay and uh, able to conceive. So I was praying for that and I started noticing children. My eye was just drawn to children and I saw that one out of three children in Alabama are carrying, you know, extra weight that is very dangerous to their health. It's a ball and chain. You see the fatigue in, in their face and it makes it difficult for them to focus in school. It makes it difficult for them to, to, to blend socially. And I just felt such compassion that I wanted to do something very, very aggressive in that direction. And this was in 2002. So it was not quite a trend yet. So my husband being a scientist and also, you know, he was, you know, chief of neurosurgery at UAB and he's very connected to a lot of the top UAB professors and, and doctors. You know, he said, if you're gonna do this, do it right. Let it be science-based, let it be measurable. You know, just don't waste your time. Know that you're making a difference or don't waste your time. And so I gathered a volunteer advisory team and all of them were the brightest and the best in their respective fields of preventive medicine, pediatrics, cardiovascular health and wellness, obesity, and then education. So we knew that if you wanted to educate children, but not just tell them what to do, let them practice what you're preaching, it would have to boil down to PE, physical education. And I noticed that it was a misused period of time for most schools in Alabama at that time, and in some cases today, but that's changed dramatically since. And I made the argument and the claim that if we could turn PE into a measurable personal health and wellness experience, I think we could dramatically help children prevent diseases before they become established. And that's how Christie's Heal Initiative was born. And you've been listening to our Women of True Grit series and Christy Swade. And my goodness, what things we've learned from this young lady. I mean, she's lost everything she cared about. Her husband, basically, and she come to the conclusion that especially everything I care about has no value. And so now she's got to figure out how to do something that adds value to the world. And by the way, this is a fundamental part of her life. Your purpose is to use your gifts, talents, and all to glorify God. And that's what she believed, and so many Americans believe this. I'd say the vast majority of Americans believe this. When we come back, we're going to find out what Christy Sway does in her new endeavor to work on childhood obesity in her home state of Alabama. The Women of True Grit series continues here on Our American Story.
And we're back with the conclusion of Christy Swade's story. We've heard about her career as a professional jet skier, as a TV stunt woman, and then as a safety advocate with the Coast Guard. And by the way, my goodness, sometimes I'll go out on a Saturday and a little bit of alcohol, a lot of people just doing crazy stuff, and the worst and most dangerous place to be is out on the water. But it was seeing the children's obesity epidemic after moving to Alabama that really pushed her into the health and wellness space and driven by science and data, not simply by emotion. Here's the rest of the story, the last part of the story. Here's Christy. We are seeing 10-year-olds being prescribed adult-strength medication for chronic diseases such as high blood pressure, heart disease, and diabetes, taking Lipitor. This is stuff that was traditionally only seen in aging adults. We know we have an epidemic that is crippling uh, on many levels. It started small in one school. We refined it, and then we get, went into two schools, then five schools in a completely socially, economically diverse cluster of schools. We didn't leave anyone out. We didn't. We just wanted to make this something that could work for everyone. HEAL was designed and it's completely built on heart rate technology. Heart rate technology saved my career when I was in the most peak of physical fitness. But then heart rate technology helped me through my pregnancies, which by the way, I did conceive and I do have two beautiful boys. Another dream come true. And, uh, and then since, I mean, I'm now about to be 49 and holding and I've got all kinds of wear and tear and training is different for me today than it than it was 10 years ago and heart rate still just keeps me doing the best thing for myself uh, so it's true for children you get a child who's not fit in their target heart zone they don't have to move very quickly to be in their zone and it's the zone that's 70 to 80 percent of your maximum heart rate that produces the most health benefits for disease prevention. So being above the zone is not better. Being below the zone is not better. It's like a speed limit. This heart rate monitor is the speedometer in the car and your zone is your speed limit. So if we get children in their zone and they get rewarded for being in their zone, the child who's not fit can get an A right alongside the athlete who's on the track team. They're both on an equal playing field and they both can be successful in PE. And so now uh, PE has great value. And we are now being credited by the State Department of Education and the State Department of Health for helping schools satisfy seven out of 10 wellness components with one curriculum. And we're getting significant measurable results every single year and thousands of testimonies of how this curriculum has not just changed the student's life, with the family's behavior and also uh, teachers. We've built a teacher training component because a lot of PE teachers were former athletes who kind of got unmotivated or lost their way in their own health and wellness journey. And so we have what, we, what a corporation would call employee wellness programming. We provide professional development training for our educators so that they are leading by example. HEAL stands for Healthy Eating, Active Living, and it is a health and wellness program that is not just about food and physical activity. We also teach about healthy sleep patterns and uh, 
how to uh, connect and engage with your family members and friends so that you can enjoy the journey of health and wellness. It's always better to do, uh, to practice health behaviors with people you love and for people you love. Valuable things deserve the best of care. And since you're so valuable, you should know how to take care of your health, which is the springboard to success in school and in life. And that applies to people of all ages. Heal is changing lives for the better. There are numerous stories, starting with the picture above her desk. That little boy up there in that picture, he was actually expelled from school for violent behavior. Heal Hero campaign is something we start in the beginning of the year and we let it be known that if anyone who engages in the Heal program um, with their teacher and follows the instructions, but also then uses their HEAL knowledge and passion to help others, they are a candidate for the HEAL Hero Award, which will be given at the end of the school year. And so this little boy, uh, for the first time, grabbed onto something that resonated with him. And instead of being a bully, he chose to become a HEAL Hero, and he became an assistant coach to the PE teacher and the entire school voted him the heel hero. So there he is up in the Ivory Club at a Bama game because we wanted to give him a little extra special reward. But he is a foster child and he gets bounced around. His parents um, are having a rough time and so his home life is rough. And I'm so thankful that heel gave him something very special that transformed his heart and his body and his mind. And uh, so he has a positive purpose. We have this little studio called Rennie's Living Room, and that's in the Heal headquarters here. Rennie's Living Room is a reenactment of this precious girl who was in fifth grade at the time. She also lived in a neighborhood where there's a lot of gun violence, and her mother forbid her and her little brother to ever go outside and play. So they lived in this tiny, confined apartment so this girl got the idea that she would gather all her heel materials from school and teach her little brother how to do them in the house. And she wrote her testimony, which said it was a key to life for our family, that my mom is losing weight and my brother and I are eating more vegetables and we are physically active in our house. It was it changed, and in fact, we had a sociologist review her testimony because she started off saying that she was anxious and sad, and then at the end that she now has hope and a whole new view of life once again. So it's these stories that make me love to come to work. It's not really work for me or my team. My whole team feels the same way. It's these testimonies that just, there's no limit to what we'll give in terms of our time and our effort to keep working with HEAL and these children. We, we currently serve uh, 170 schools, 34,000 students today, and that's about 90,000 household members. And they, uh, at the end of the year, they all write testimonies. So that's a lot of testimonies. We hand them off to UAV and Samford University, and a lot of college students are now doing um, internships with us and dissertations and research efforts. So we've become a factory for research, and it's super fun because we just, get to get these beautiful reports of all the good work being done out there. HEAL is 
is universal enough to where we could be friends with everyone, keep that education train going, because I believe education is what sparks the awareness and the motivation for why and how a child would want to start living a healthy lifestyle behaviors. And I've seen children becoming the champions of their household. Look at it in reverse. I mean, how many parents have their kids driving them through fast food because they want it so bad? I mean, we do what our kids want. Well, fortunately, we're able to uh, we're able to get children to want to live healthy lives. These children see their parents taking medications. They see them going in and out of the doctors. They see them sick, and they say, "I don't want to be like that." And we have a captive audience, and these little fifth graders will go in and transform their households for better health. Family has been at the heart of everything Christy has done from the start. Had her mother not picked her up off the ground all those years ago and taught her grace in defeat, Christy may not have overcome the odds to become a champion, battle through injury, and begin a national fight for help. Now she must call upon that strength again in the face of loss. My mama is, is really sick, and she's preparing me that she's going to the Lord soon. And that's hard for me, breaks me to pieces. But her words are, are ones that I'll always hold on to. And she would say, don't you dare make it about me. She told me, when, when I pass, I, I don't want that thing open. You close it up and put a pretty picture on top because that's not me. I will have evacuated that body that has extended its shelf life. So she said, um, remember the best is always yet to come. And so my mom says that in every season of life, the best is yet to come, stay strong, great fruit will be born through this adversity. And even the worst, you know, the the losing of someone you love. Yeah, I mean, as much faith as we all have, we're going to miss her. And I don't look forward to that. And I'm suffering a great deal, and it, and, it, and it causes fear. But I have to hold firm to the faith. The alternative is not an option. And you've been listening to Christy Swade and Christy's mother in the end. Well, she did evacuate that body to put it in her words. And the best is yet to come. Christie's mother passed, but my goodness, all that Christie's mother taught her is there. Stay strong and great fruit will be born of adversity. And indeed, that's been the case in Christie's story and in so many of the stories that are a part of our Women of True Grit series. Thanks to Edie Hand and thanks to Christie Swade and her mom, who's in heaven looking down on her daughter. I'm sure that's what Christie thinks. It's certainly what I do. There's stories, all of them here, on Our American Stories.